Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and as always, that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism. Um, so yeah, as always, uh, just as a note, you can find me on the Facebook page throughout the week. Um, I've been a little bit light on that lately and I apologize, but I will try and get back to doing some things, uh, during the week. And you can also catch this show if you miss any part of it or other shows, uh, from the past via either a podcatcher, cause I am on most of the podcatchers. And also via the website, evidencebasederrata.com. All right, so let's start out tonight. Uh, even though we have passed into April, we are just coming out of uh, Women's History Month. So I think it was uh, nice to see another female scientists as the Google Doodle this morning. And so there was a quick biography, in case you missed it, of physicist Hedwig Cohn. Um, she's being honored on what would have been her 132nd birthday today. She was just one of three women certified to teach at a German university prior to World War II. She was born in Breslau, which is now Wrocław, Poland, on April 5th, 1887. Uh, she was forced to flee Germany during World War II because she was of Jewish descent. Uh, but she was able to move to America and she was published in more than 20 journals. Her work was in a textbook that was used as a standard introduction to the field of radiometry uh, into the 1960s. And um, despite some uh, reports, her work is still cited today by some modern physicists. And so after moving to America, she worked at the Women's College of the University of North Carolina, and then at Wellesley, where she continued her work on flame spectroscopy, uh, which she had actually begun way back in 1912, a year before her doctorate. She worked on electromagnetic radiation and atomic and molecular spectroscopy as well uh, while at Wellesley, and later she worked as a research researcher at Duke University. And so she is just another of the uh, often unsung heroes of uh, women's contributions to science that we don't tend to hear about as much. So I wanted to give her a shout out since, um, you know, I think that it's really important to remember that there were a lot of women doing a lot of science in history, and that's not talked about enough. Um, I think we still really, the, the default when you think of scientist is still a uh, glass, w glasses wearing uh, white man. And I think that probably in a uh, lab coat. And I think that we definitely need to shift that perception and that we need to have a greater idea of just what a scientist can be and is represented by. Okay. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, uh, let's move on to a really sort of neat invention. And of course, it's just in proof of concept right now, but this could be really cool. Uh, Tufts University engineers have developed a novel fabrication method that creates dyed 
threads, which are able to change color when they detect a variety of gases. They have shown that the threads can be sort of read by a person and suggest that it would be even better if you could use a, smart, a smartphone camera in order to detect exposure to gases with as low as 50 parts per million concentrations. And so if woven into clothing, these could potentially create reusable, washable, and affordable safety wear for medical, workplace, military, and rescue environments, according to a study which was published this week in the journal Scientific Reports. Now, it's not as precise as current electronic devices, uh, but such smart clothing could be a good way to equip a larger variety of people with safety systems without the need for such specialized electronics or special training. Um, you know, you could just say, if this turns whatever color, that's bad. <laughs> um, and so the study used a manganese-based dye, MNTPP, uh, methyl red, and brom bromethymol blue as proofs of concept. And so MNTPP and bromothymol blue can, really, can detect ammonia, while methyl red can detect hydrogen chloride. And these are gases that are commonly released from cleaning supplies, fertilizers, and in common manufacturing processes, and, you know, are also not good for you uh, to be breathing in in any way, shape, or form. And so it was developed using a three-step process uh, that creates traps in the dye um, in the thread. So the thread is first dipped in the dye, and then it is treated with acetic acid to create a coarser sort of swelled fiber, um, which hopefully will allow more binding interactions between the dye and the thread to really um, create a strong bond. And then the Finally, the thread is treated with polydimethylsiloxane, or PDMS. And so that is really kind of where the magic is. It creates a flexible physical seal around the two parts, the dye and the thread. It repels water, and it prevents the dye from leaching when washed. And, very importantly, it's gas permeable, which means that the gases being detected can reach the optical dyes. The dyes we used work in different ways, so we can detect gases with different chemistries, said Samir Sankuse, professor of electrical and computer engineering at Tufts University's School of Engineering, who heads the NanoLab at Tufts and was the corresponding author of the study. Uh, so his team used simple dyes that detected the gases with acid or base properties. But since we are using a method that effectively traps the dye to the thread, rather than relying so much on binding chemistry, we have more flexibility to use dyes with a wide range of functional chemistries to detect different types of gas, he said. And so the currently developed dyes change color in a dose-dependent way. And so that's proportional to the concentration as measured using spectroscopic levels. And so, for instance, if a cell phone camera could be used, a greater variety might be able to be, a greater variety of threads could be used that would be beyond what could be seen necessarily with the naked eye. 
And so multiple threads and dies could be used, which would be interpreted by the device. And again, that's a simple cell phone rather than, you know, a very expensive um, spectroscope. And so what's really amazing is that, again, these are waterproof. So the threads work underwater, which can aid in the detection of dissolved ammonia. While the PDMS sealant is hydrophobic and keeps water off of the thread, the dissolved gases still can still reach the dye to be quantified, said Rachel Oyoung, lead author and graduate student in the Tufts Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering. As dissolved gas sensors, we imagine smart fabrics detecting carbon dioxide or other volatile organic compounds during oil and gas exploration as one possible application. And again, since the dyes are resistant to washing, the threads can be used over and over again in a way that would potentially make them economically viable for a larger portion of people who might not have access to more ephemeral sensors or expensive motor monitors. And so that is extremely cool. Um, I think that that is something that could definitely really help a lot of people (laughs) um, if it can sort of become something that is widely available. Of course, you know, again, this is one of those things that's currently just in a lab somewhere. Um, They haven't really developed it into actual clothing or anything like that, but it seems like a very, um, you know, straightforward kind of um, manufacturing process. And hopefully it is going to be um, economically viable because I think that could be really helpful to a lot of people. Um, We have a lot of people in this country uh, and all over the world who are working in really bad situations where they shouldn't be, um, that they are exposed to a lot of things that really they should not be exposed to. Um, And, you know, (laughs) I hope that this is something that could be rolled out to people and would actually allow them to not have to deal with those sorts of things. Um, because yeah, it's, it is really unfortunate. There's a lot of people that are exposed to things that, um, you know, there's not really any good way currently that we are monitoring this or, uh, protecting people. And so, Anything like this that can be developed, that can be helpful to actually protect people is very exciting. Okay, let us uh, switch gears, but stay underwater uh, to talk about a newly discovered organism that has a chlorophyll gene and yet does not photosynthesize. And so this weird organism has been given the name Corylocolid, Uh, And it's found in 70% of corals around the world. And so researchers hope that it might give insights into how we might better protect coral reefs in the future. Uh, Because something that's found in 70% of them, (laughs) knowing a little bit more about that, like the fact that it exists, (laughs) is probably going to be helpful. This is the second most abundant cohabitant of coral on the planet, and it hasn't been seen until now, said Patrick Keeling, a University of British Columbia botanist and senior researcher overseeing the study published in Nature. 
This organism poses completely new biochemical questions. It looks like a parasite, and it's definitely not photosynthetic, but it still makes chlorophyll. Now, if you remember, chlorophyll is the green pigment that is found in most plants and algae, and it is essential to the process of, of photosynthesis, which is the ability of plants to convert energy into from sunlight. Um, so they take in sunlight and they convert it into energy using chlorophyll, um, creating sugars that the plant uses to uh, do the things that it needs to do. Uh, and so, yeah, having chlorophyll without photosynthesis is actually very dangerous because chlorophyll is very good at capturing energy, but without photosynthesis to release the energy slowly, it is like living with a bomb in your cells, Keeling said. And so coral colds live in the gastric cavity of the majority of corals responsible for reef building, uh, as well as black corals, fan corals, mushroom corals, and anemones. And so they are one of what scientists call apicomplexin. Uh, and that is actually a huge group of parasites that have a cellular compartment called a plasmid. Uh, and so that's where plants and algal, cell and algal cells perform photosynthesis. Now, the most famous of this type of parasite is actually a plasmodium, uh, the one that causes malaria. And so researchers have found other ampicomplexins in coral and so they believe that they might have evolved from benign organisms that eventually lost the ability to photosynthesize and became parasites. But they've never before discovered an organism that contains all of the plasmids required to produce chlorophyll. It's quite a head scratcher, said Walden Kwong, a UBC postdoctoral research fellow and lead author of the study. We don't know why these organisms are holding onto these photosynthetic, onto these photosynthesis genes. There's some novel biology going on here, something we haven't seen before. And again, part of the reason that we want to figure this out is because researchers hope that further research will lead to more information on how these organisms fit into the overall ecosystem of coral. Um, and even may lead to novel ideas of how to better preserve coral habitats, which are currently in danger around the world. Um, so um, I don't want to dwell too much on it because I don't want to, you know, we like to we like to stay positive around here. But I know that there was just an, a recent report that there aren't enough um, juvenile polyps in the Great Barrier Reef currently in order to sustain it, that uh, the coral there is just not producing enough um, new polyps. And so that's a really worrying trend. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of issues, especially with the Great Barrier Reef. Um, I mean, reefs around the world are struggling uh, from bleaching and from the fact that the oceans are warming. And of course, warming leads to more dissolved carbon dioxide, which means that the oceans are becoming more acidic and animals that use uh, calcium carbonate um, to create their, sh their uh, homes or their shells uh, 
that that's a struggle for them because they are having a real trouble with that. And so, yeah, um, it's, it's real hard to sometimes stay positive about these things, but, uh, but let's talk about, uh, let's stay in the oceans, but talk about something that again has a sort of downer moment, but is also really, really fascinating. Um, so one of the most fascinating formations in the oceans are, um, deep ocean hydrothermal vents and, um, cold seep environments. And so, uh, Hydrothermal vents are actually a contend, a good contender, in fact, for um, the place where life on Earth might have actually uh, begun. So, you know, we used to have this idea that it was a sort of warm little pool uh, in the sort of uh, shallows of a sea and uh, maybe some electricity struck and things like that. Uh, that kind of used to be the the prevailing uh, conjecture as to how sort of abiogenesis started, um, which is basically, um, you know, how we basically got the first sort of uh, molecules that were able to uh, eventually become living organisms. And of course, last week I talked about the Cambrian explosion, which is when uh, the sort of one of the big leaps came from kind of single-celled organism to complex, frankly, crazy organisms happened. Um, but this is way back before that. And um, so if you go to hydrothermal vents now, you'll see all sorts of amazing things, um, all sorts of uh, bacterial, just mats of all sorts of bacteria that are sort of uh, doing chemosynthesis chemosynthesis. So we were just talking about photosynthesis, which is converting energy from sunlight. But most of the animals, in fact, I think all of the animals and uh, organisms that live in uh, these hydrothermal vent environments or in um, cold seep environments are um, chemosynthetic. And so they are taking chemicals and uh, using those to convert them into energy. So things like sulfides. And um, so it's just a completely different situation. And, um, you know, there's some really famous organisms like the giant tube worms that are um, really fascinating. They're basically just a giant tube. <laughs> um, they don't really have a lot of anything else in them. Uh, they don't have a, you know, a big complex gastric system or anything like that. They're basically just a tube. And, um, if you've ever seen them, they have kind of the, the bright sort of, uh, burgundy tops. And that's actually a, uh, microorganism, a symbiotic microorganism that is, uh, helping them do this chemosyn, chemosynthesis in order to actually, um, you know, basically be alive. And, um, so yeah, they're, they're crazy and there's all sorts of other things there. Um, you know, a lot of albino, uh, crabs and things like that. A lot of things have, um, because it's so far down, most of these, um, hydrothermal vents are, are very far down. Um, they're, they're deep ocean, um, features. And so you get a lot of, um, just sort of albino animals and, um, yeah, it's just, they're really incredibly fascinating. Um, and there's actually, um, a video 
that I will post um, on the Facebook page tonight from um, this particular expedition. But like, there's lots of different um, documentaries you can watch because it's really, you know, the visuals of these things are just breathtaking. Um, and it's just so crazy to think that these are out there. We didn't even know about them until probably like 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know exactly when, but we didn't even know they existed. <laughs> um, which is, of course, another big thing because we still don't know a ton about our oceans in general, uh, despite the fact that the ocean is, in fact, the largest ecosystem on the earth. 70% of the earth is covered in water. And there's a lot of things that we do not know about it. And um, I know that's sort of a, that's a theme around here uh, on Friday nights is how little we know about the ocean. But let's talk about a little bit about what we uh, have been looking at in the ocean, at least, you know, some amazing uh, scientists. And so um, Dr. Mandy Joy of the University of Georgia and an interdisciplinary research team have discovered large venting mineral towers that reach more than 75 feet high and 30 feet across in the Gulf of California. And so these towers include volcanic flanges that create the illusion of mirrors when looking at these superheated hydrothermal fluids that pool below them. So another really cool thing about uh, the ocean and especially the deep ocean around things like uh, deep, um, sorry, sorry, cold seeps and uh, hydrothermal vents is that, you know, we we kind of tend to think of water as being pretty homogenous, but it can be very non-homogenous. It can have, uh, you know, there there are underwater rivers, there are um, underwater pools. So a lot of these, a lot of these, um, the the cold seeps are basically almost they almost create kind of briny, uh, you know, lakes or ponds underneath the sea and they're you know distinctive from the other water around them and so it's really cool to think about how these are creating different uh layers of water and um you know especially with the um with these the water is often very briny um especially cold seeps and so it has a much higher density and so that's why it's able to stay low. And in fact, there are actually places in the ocean where if, uh, you know, fish fall into it, it's so briny that it kills them. Um, and so there are um, just, the again, the ocean is just incredible and amazing, and we don't know nearly enough about it. And pretty much everything we learn about it is amazing and fascinating. And I know that there's a lot of technical challenges for why we obviously haven't studied it more, but it's just, it's always amazing to me because everything we've learned about it is so cool. And I don't know why more people aren't trying to find ways to explore it better. Um, but yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the actual study <laughs> um, or, you know, the work they've been doing. And so these fluids are actually highly uh, sulfitic. Uh, which is what a lot of the chemosynthesis is based on. And, um, but again, what's amazing is that there are huge amounts of biodiversity. And so, um, you know, but as with all places, uh, humans have already accidentally left their mark. 
Oh, we discovered remarkable towers where every surface was occupied by some type of life. The vibrant colors found on the living rocks was striking and reflects a diversity in biological composition as well as mineral distribution, said Dr. Joy. This is an amazing natural laboratory to document incredible organisms and better understand how they survive in extremely challenging environments. Unfortunately, even in these remote and beautiful environments, we saw copious amounts of trash, including fishing nets, deflated mylar balloons, and even a discarded Christmas tree, and even discarded Christmas trees. This provided a stark juxtaposition next to the spectacular mineral structures and biodiversity. All right. So, um, yeah, just a fun fact. Mylar balloons are terrible and you should never buy them. Um, they are extremely bad for the environment. I'm just not even sure why people are still allowed to buy them. Um, they also waste helium, <laughs> which is a whole nother story. We're not going to talk about if, whether uh, we have a helium shortage or not, because it seems like the jury is still out on that. But um, yeah, mylar balloons, pretty much all balloons are terrible. Um, I know that we sort of talked about it more in the 90s, I feel like, and then kind of people forgot, because um, I feel like people don't talk about it as much anymore. And so yeah, balloons are terrible. You should never, ever um, buy them. Um, they just end up in the environment and they end up hurting birds and sea animals. And they're just, they're just kind of the worst. Um, okay. That's the, that is our environmental moment for the, for the evening. Um, so, you know, this, that unfortunately, you know, really provides a stark juxtaposition next to the spectacular mineral and mineral structures and biodiversity, you know? Um, so yeah. But of course, the team was able to do some really great work nonetheless. Uh, they used advanced technology, including a 4K deep sea underwater camera rig, uh, radiation tracking devices, sediment and fluid samplers. And so those were aboard the remotely operated vehicle, uh, the ROV, uh, Sub, Subbastion, um, with it being Sub and then Bastion. Um, because, you know, again, scientists are nerds. And so um, ROVs are also the best. They're so cool. And so they, not only were they actually studying the uh, hydrothermal vents, again, they were also looking at cold seeps. And I've talked about those obviously a couple of times now. And so cold seeps are actually another source of dissolved gases, and they also support complex biomes. Now, they're not actually cold. They are often slightly warmer than the surrounding waters, but they are cold in contrast to hydrothermal vents where the water is superheated due to geothermal heating and are basically, uh, you mostly find um, hydrothermal vents at areas of uh, that are volcanically active. So comparatively, <laughs> cold seeps are pretty cold. Um now, both are underwater sources of methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas with 30 times the strength of carbon dioxide. And so studying the methane cycling here can help researchers better understand the biological storage of methane in the water column and sediment systems. Um, and so in addition to the methane cycle, the researchers have also been collecting and analyzing DNA from microbes on board using handheld sequencers, which is just crazy <laughs> to me. I mean, 
you know, I think that most of us think about this occasionally, the amount of leaps and bounds in technology that we have taken since I was like in high school. Um, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when that was, but it was a while ago. Um, you know, that they can use handheld DNA sequencers now is just mind blowing to me. And so uh, they visited eight sites throughout the Gulf of California with the blessings of the Mexican government, uh, who still likes our scientists, at least. Um, It is a different world down there. Each dive feels like floating into a science fiction film, said Schmidt Ocean Institute co-founder Wendy Schmidt. The complex layer of data we've collected aboard uh, the research vessel Falkor during this expedition will help tell the story of this remote place and bring it to public attention. Witnessing these remarkable oceanscapes, we are reminded that although they are out of our everyday sight, they are hardly hardly immune from human impact. Our hope is to inspire people to learn more and care more about our oceans. And again, I do just want to remind you that I will post a link to the amazing uh, YouTube video that they've posted. Uh, the multicolor landscapes are just completely, truly alien and also just sort of heartbreakingly beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, I will do that. But right now, what we need to do is take a short break so we can do some PSAs and some show promos. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol-poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation, up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. We know it. 
Hey, it's Dio from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Got it? Yes. Worried about climate change? Want to do something about it? Join Congressman James McGovern, State Senator Joe Comerford, Northampton Mayor David Narkowitz, and Community Actions Claire Higgins as they answer questions on the Green New Deal. Monday, April 22nd at 6 p.m. at Northampton High School, following the Earth Dance on the church lawn from 2 to 5. Join your friends to demand a future with a livable climate and justice for all. For info, go to www.climateactionnow.com. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, so we are back. And we are going to switch again. We are going to move out of the oceans and uh, we're going to come back to something that's way, way more familiar to pretty much everyone and uh, talk about YouTube videos. Uh, let's talk about cats for a moment. <laughs> uh, now, there is of course, the age-old question between uh, people who prefer cats and people who prefer dogs. Um, and, you know, people who prefer cats often say like, oh, well, 
cats fail all of these tests because they just don't care. They're too cool to deal with these things. Um, but, uh, researchers have to keep trying because even things that seem really intuitive until they've actually been tested by science, scientists can't say that they're true or false. So, um, yeah, this is probably going to be one of those things that some people might try and file under the uh, yeah, duh, um, <laughs> file, but it's actually really fascinating and kind of, uh, controversial. So the, uh, question at hand is, do cats know their names? Uh, and of course, if they do know their names, will they tell us? <laughs> now we know that dogs are very good at knowing their names, uh, but for cats, as with everything else, the answer is a lot more complex. Now, dogs seem to have been specifically bred to aid researchers in behavioral studies. They're just really good at them, um, clearly because they've grown up uh, or they've evolved with humans in that way. And because of the their sort of uh, pack mentality and things like that, they respond to humans very well. So dogs, we know, they know their names, they know commands, they're, they've got that pat. But of course, anyone who owns cats, as I do, uh, knows that that can't necessarily be said for uh, cats. Uh, cats are definitely not into doing what you want them to do ever, <laughs> pretty much. And uh, so new research from uh, Sophia University in Tokyo, Japan, offers new experimental data that at least some cats can indeed recognize their names. Now, we know that cats can recognize human gestures, facial expressions, and vocal cues. Uh, so sometimes, um, so things like uh, tone of voice. So my cats certainly know when I'm mad at them. Uh, and they seem to sense, now of course, you have to be cautious, uh, when I'm sad and, you know, could use them to poke their faces against my face and say, love me. <laughs> and so Atsuko uh, Sayatom, the lead author of the new study, had previously shown that cats can recognize their owner's voices. But as previously noted, research into cat cognition and behavior lags far behind that of dogs. So in order to find out if cats can recognize their names, Sato conducted a series of experiments in which he observed 78 cats in Japanese households or at a cat cafe. Now, one of the most important aspects of the research was whether or not cats showed habituation to their names. Now, habituation happens with an, when an animal, or person, frankly, uh, becomes accustomed to a sound or other stimulus and begins to ignore it. This is because they found that the sound or stimulus is not important, um, either through, you know, experience or cognition. And so the thing is about that, if they understand the idea of the name, that should be important enough to them uh, because it's tied to at least rewards, if not also punishment. Uh, and so it should not be something that would become habituated or at least that's the theory. And so four different experiments were conducted where either the owner or the researcher would say a string of four different words in front of a cat followed by the cat's name. The four words were meant to be habituation stimuli, which the cat would learn to ignore. These included sort of boring words, mostly nouns or the names of other cats. 
Interestingly, all of the cats, uh, basic at, at the end of the experiment, showed interest in their own names, even when spoken by strangers, but did become habituated to the other words. There was one interesting exception. Cats from the cafe knew their own names, but also responded to names of other cats in the cafe. In contrast, cats from homes with multiple cats all were able to discern their own names and ignore those of other members of the household. The researchers posit that the environment in the cafe might be such that there's less conditioning for the cats to learn their individual names, either from the sheer volume of cats or from the limited interaction with individuals using their names. Um, so there's probably a lot more people just saying, here, kitty, kitty, than the actual name of the cat. And so that's that's kind of the takeaway that the researchers give you. Um, but one of the important things to remember is that the way that people present their research isn't necessarily the whole of their research. Um, and this is, of course, you know, not necessarily meant to be any kind of falsehood or, uh, you know, that they're misleading you. It's just that, you know, when you look at data, you form particular conclusions. And so uh, Michael Delgado from the Department of Medicine and Epidemiologists epidemiology uh, at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine uh, looked at the data and notes that the researchers excluded the behavior of cats who did not show full habituation to the general nouns and other cats' names. If you look at all of the data, the number of cats who respond to their names is pretty small, uh, Delgado noted. Generally, only one-third to half of cats show an increased response to their names, which isn't exactly mind-blowing. And it, of course, also involved a subjective measure of response from the cats to the various words. And so, um, you know, when you have responses that are not all that far apart from one another, it's kind of hard to argue that, you know, the cat was really responding this to this one, but not quite to that one. And, um, but it wasn't all bad. Delgado liked the part of the study where the researchers were careful to match enunciation of each word, including the names, but wanted to know more about whether the names of cats with high discernment were shorter or easier, or if their owners refrained from also using nicknames. Another big open question is whether or not the cats understand the utterance as a name or simply as a sound that is associated with food, cuddles, and other rewards. The results from the cafe cats certainly suggest that they do not think of their name as, a, as uniquely theirs, uh, since they also responded to the names of other cats. And so it would be interesting to conduct the test on the same test on cats from another cat cat cafe to see if the uh, same response held for all of those cats in cat cafes. So while this research is intriguing, it is certainly uh, not proof positive uh, that cats know, about, know their names in particular or care about their names in particular uh, beyond something that can uh, lead to good things. Now, of course, I don't think that that changes any cat lover's mind on how they see it or how much they believe their cats love them just as much as they love their cats. Um, you know, I certainly am very convinced that my cats, uh, at least benevolent, one of them 
benevolently tolerates me. The other one loves me. Um, I have a big dumb boy cat who just is like, you are the best thing that's ever existed. I want to spend all my time with you. I love you so much. The other cat's kind of like, you're cool. I can handle you. (laughs) Um, And I am totally okay with anthropomorphizing my cats. I have no problem with that. But I also understand that I am anthropomorphizing them. Um, So yeah, love cats, love dogs. Do you. Doesn't matter. I think that cats are great. I also love my friend's dogs and think they're wonderful too. I just know I don't have the time or patience to take care of a dog. Cats are wonderful, wonderful that way. Um, (laughs) They demand a lot less from you. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of how I roll. All right, enough about cats. Let's move on to birds. Uh, Just a little quick thing here. Uh, A new study published in the journal Science looks at the molecular origin of the loss of flight in birds from New Zealand like the kiwi and moa. And uh, by the way, if you've never seen a picture of a moa or a video of, say, a moa swallowing an apple whole, I highly recommend it if you enjoy being terrified of things that actually exist in this world and also... Uh, a great example of how uh, birds are definitely dinosaurs. Good Lord. Okay. (laughs) So despite the obvious fact that, for instance, they have small wings and therefore can't fly, uh, there are other major, there are major changes to their DNA uh, of such flightless birds. And so um, that's what they were looking at. This work tells us more about the origins of moa and kiwi. It supports the hypothesis that the ancestral moa flew here, while the ancestral kiwi, which is related to the emu, may have walked, or indeed flown, from the likes of Australia or Madagascar over the ancient Gondwanan continent, said Dr. Paul Gardner of Otago's Department of Biochemistry. And so Dr. Gardner co-authored the study alongside his former student, Dr. Nicole Wheeler. The team compared DNA sequences between the different birds and used bioinformatics, determining that it's mostly non-coding regulatory DNA rather than the protein-coding DNA that explains the similar loss of flight in these birds. And so previous research had actually focused on the protein-coding regions as driving flightlessness. They were joined in the work by colleagues at Harvard, in particular Professor Scott Edwards and Dr. Tim Sackton. This collaboration, along with the help of Maori landowners, which they were uh, gracious enough to actually thank, uh, which is always a pleasant surprise. Uh, And so uh, those landowners allowed birds on their land to actually be sampled, uh, can lead to a better idea of places in the genome that researchers should concentrate on. And so um, in the past, we've always kind of thought that the protein coding genes are kind of where it's at. But we've increasingly found uh, that that might not actually be where the main driver of species diversity and change is actually happening. Um, You know, we used to call this non-coding DNA, uh, I'm sure you, if you're old enough, you've heard the term junk DNA. Um, And so we do have large sequences of old or unused DNA, um, but 
most of this non-coding DNA, large chunks of it actually do play roles uh, in both gene expression and in evolution. And so, um, you know, a lot more of the DNA is used day to day than we used to think was the case. Okay, now let's move on to a kind of a hilarious story, but with a really important premise. Um, it's an important thing that we should be working on, even though it seems really silly and dumb when you first hear it. Uh, so apparently, female mosquitoes listening to the dubstep artist Skrillex had less sex and sucked less blood than those who spent 10 minutes in silence. <laughs> Now, again, while this may seem like a silly bit of research, it's actually part of ongoing research in how to reduce the harm caused by mosquitoes. By sheer numbers, mosquitoes are the deadliest animal on the planet. They kill more humans than other humans kill humans. They are the number one hands-down killer of humans every year. And so the researchers wanted to test whether loud music could be used to manipulate mosquito behavior as part of a way to design, quote unquote, environmentally friendly interventions. The researchers tested their hypothesis by blasting electronic music from a speaker set up near a cage of hungry female mosquitoes who had been deprived of food for 12 hours. Now, this part's a little bit sad, but it's okay. It, I'm sure every, I'm sure that everything was okay, sort of, in the end. Uh, there was also a single male mosquito and a restrained hamster <laughs> for, you know, them to feed on, unfortunately. So in a series of trials consisting of 10 females switched into the cage, uh, who had the Skrillex song, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites, uh, basically played on repeat for them for 10 minutes. Uh, so the researchers chose this song because of its use of excessive loudness and constantly escalating pitch. <laughs> the mosquitoes in the music were so distracted that they did not start looking for food until an average of two to three minutes had elapsed. Mosquitoes in the silent control group started after about 30 seconds. Um, and, you know, even after finding their prey, the music swamped mosquitoes, stopped, weren't, didn't try and eat as much. Um, you know, they, <laughs> they were just not, they were not happy. Uh, as for their sex drive, both males and females produce sounds through the beating of their wings, the authors wrote. For successful mating to occur, the male must harmonize its flight tone with that of its partner using auditory sensitivity. And as you can imagine, <laughs> the noise pollution uh, definitely did not help with that. Um, and so, yeah... Uh, this is definitely a case where uh, noise is actually basically pollution. In this case, it might be a good thing because anything, again, that reduces the incidence of uh, mosquitoes feeding on humans, especially uh, anything that we can do to make that less of a thing 
is great. Um, and especially if we can do it in ways that don't, you know, massively harm the environment, uh, like DDT and things like that. Um, though, um, you know, we could have a, we could spend an entire, uh, show talking about DDT. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let that sit and move on with life. Um, but, uh, this is apparently not the first time that researchers have actually found that insects can actually be, uh, sort of disrupted by music as well. Uh, so the, the other notable example that I found, um, or that was mentioned, um, as well, but I had heard it before is that, uh, beetles who listened to, uh, ACDC's Back in Black, uh, were found to eat fewer aphids than those allowed to forage in, uh, silence. And so, yeah, um, it is definitely a thing. <laughs> um, and it makes sense. I mean, insects are very small and I imagine that they are, um, not necessarily because they're small, but I can imagine that, you know, uh, sound waves probably affect them in, um, you know, different ways than humans, because I can imagine that a lot of them use sound. So for instance, with the mating, they, uh, the two mosquitoes need to be able to sync themselves together. And if you've got this loud music playing, uh, it's really hard to do that. Um, so yeah, well, I do want it. I wanted to wrap up tonight, um, with a tiny update, which I was hoping I would have better news. I was like, oh, I should check in on that. And I don't yet have better news about this, but I did want to check in about it because we've been following it. Uh, the Insight Landers robotic, uh, the, the Insight Landers, um, instrument, the, um, the, uh, heat probe has continued to be stuck. It has not yet actually, um, successfully managed to move any further. Uh, it's been almost a month now. They're still working on it. They're still trying to find different ways to deal with it. Um, they basically stopped trying to just keep hitting it, um, and said, okay, let's take a step back. Let's have some engineers work on it. Um, and so, uh, they're, they haven't completely given up, but, um, they're, um, you know, it doesn't look really promising. Um, but they do think that they'll be able to do some things even with it, uh, stuck like that. So hopefully, you know, um, hopefully either they'll get it unstuck or they'll, uh, figure out some way to basically still make the magic happen without that. So, um, let us hope that that is the truth and uh, that we will have better news in the future. Uh, but for tonight, that is all for me. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.